Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, where we are discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you may be listening, thank you. Today, we're joined by a special guest and friend of the pod, Alex Flannery, to discuss vasoactives and sepsis. Alex is a critical care pharmacist in the medical ICU at the University of Kentucky Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky, and an adjunct associate professor at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy. He completed his PGY-1 residency at MUSC and his PGY-2 residency at the University of Kentucky in critical care. He's currently the RPD for the University of Kentucky PGY-2 program and a PhD candidate in clinical translational science. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. So what stands out to me just a little bit is that your current employer and where you live is the University of Kentucky in Lexington, but I know you grew up in Louisville. So is this common? Like, are you now banned from going back to Louisville? <laughs> I've been shunned, yes. <laughs> no, it's it's not uncommon. We've uh we've been up in Lexington now for uh quite a few years. So it's one of those things where my, my wife is actually a huge U of L fan, so we are a house divided for sure, and then uh her parents are huge U of L fans as well. So I have to be careful what I wear sometimes and some of our basketball games around the uh mother and father in law. But other than that it's it's okay. <laughs> well that that was unexpected that your wife is a U of L fan because for those who, who may not know, I mean, this is a serious rivalry on par with, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Duke, UNC. I mean, one of my absolute favorite stories is that patients fought in a dialysis clinic because a Louisville fan said that they were gonna whoop Kentucky and it caused just an all out brawl. <laughs> Um, Doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. <laughs> so in all of your free time, you know, between being, you know, a, a bedside pharmacist, RPD, PhD candidacy, not only, you know, toss in just, oh, yeah, casually being a dad and a husband, you know, do you get to go to many basketball games? We uh, we went to a few. Honestly, the seats are so hard to get for us, uh, like the amount of time that you have to wait in the lottery just to get a seat up in the nosebleed section that we tried it a couple times. And I'm, I'm to the point now where I'd kind of just rather watch it from home and, and get the good views. So, but there's nothing like it though, for sure. So. Oh, absolutely. Another huge thing, you know, Kentucky's home to the bourbon trail, which if, if you, if it, anyone hasn't had the chance to, to visit, who's listening, it's absolutely great. So what, to the listeners, what would you say your favorite bourbon is there? Are you a, are you a, a bourbon drinker at all? I think you have to be, if you live here uh, <laughs> a certain amount of time. So yeah. Um, I, you know, my bourbon tastes are kind of like coffee. Like I'm not, uh, I, I wouldn't call myself like a super snob, um, but I think like kind of the the Eagle Rare, the Knob Creeks, the Woodfords are good, uh, sort of mid-level, if you will, for me. So it's kind of like, <laughs> I, said, I, I won't drink, uh, you know, horrible coffee or whatever, but I think my, my bourbon and coffee taste are kind of on the same level, whatever, whatever gets the job done. So <laughs> basically you've moved on from getting it in a plastic bottle is what I'm kind of hearing. <laughs> That's correct. Yes. <laughs> Life goals. <laughs> so we'll, let's, we'll get back on track here just a little bit. So how and when did you become interested in sepsis and sepsis research? I think, you know, I've practiced uh, in the medical intensive care unit pretty much um, for almost seven years now since I've been out of residency. And so uh, for what we see, probably half or over half of our patients um, 
present with with sepsis, you know, and or respiratory failure. And so I think the amount of time that you see it, I think, is certainly one thing for me. I I think one of the reasons that I got more interested in research as a practitioner was because I I just found out that you know you were commonly getting questions, and my answer was like, well, it depends, or well, I don't know because you know this is conflicting, or no one's ever studied that. And so I think that's what kind of made me more interested in the in the research. And then I think, you know, the other thing about sepsis that I think is so interesting is that you can have patients who, you know, will succumb to it and, and do horribly yet bounce back, and, and they're really great saves for a unit. Um, some kind of patients, you know, sort of smell, smolder uh, for days and days and, and don't quite seem to get better. And, and unfortunately, some patients you know, tank very, very quickly. And so I think just the, the heterogeneity of how it presents, you would think that if you treated one thing over and over again for years on years that you would sort of get bored with it clinically and, and want to move on. But I think that reason in particular, I think, um, keeps me and a lot of other people fascinated with it. Would you say that there's a, like a, um, a case or, or like a patient or something that when it happened, it kind of stuck with you and kind of started that spark in a sense? I think it kind of built more so than um, than a patient case or anything. Like I said, just being, I think the just the lack of of data on several different things, and then the the conflicting amount of data. I think more and more. I think the more trials that come out, my, my answer on rounds is more well, kind of depends, and and it's much much less black and white. Which I think people either either love that or they hate that, kind of depending on on who you are. So. <laughs> That, that's an absolute fact. And, and that's kind of like the perfect lead in because in 2016, they, you know, the surviving sepsis campaign and their authors, right, they updated the sepsis three definition. And I think, you know, a lot of us listening are familiar with that. But when you are, you know, teaching sepsis and septic shock to, you know, pharmacy learners, or, you know, maybe reviewing it with with residents, et cetera, you know, how do you go about that? Do you, do you talk about the old SIRS criteria and definitions? Do you just work, you know, and emphasize the updated definition? Cause I feel like where we are, it's kind of like people need to know both sometimes. No, I agree. We've, we've had this talk for, for a couple of years now about how difficult it became just to teach, you know, whether it was happy students or whether in the classroom, just how difficult it was to teach to teach sepsis now that everything's changing, right? Definitions are changing, early goal directed therapies changing, uh, and kind of what you do. And so, I, you know, I still think it's valuable to go over the history about what SIRS is because I think I think they're going to see the entity, you know, formerly known as SIRS. I think they're going to see that in a lot of different cases in the ICU when it may not be sepsis. And so, I think to know what's not sepsis and, and, you know, what just might be inflammation, like what happens in a lot of surgical units, particularly neuro units. Um, I, I think it's a good intro to it and sort of to know why the definitions evolved and everything. And so I think for, for us, I think it gets you a little bit more comfortable uh, and, you know, and sort of a little more confident, if you will, like as a pharmacist arguing like, you know, Hey, I, I don't think this is sepsis. Like maybe this is just inflammation and, you know, post-op fever and whatnot. So, you know, we, we kind of landed on the approach to cover um, the historical aspects just to sort of, if anything, teach what it's not, if that makes any sense. Oh, I, absolutely. Um, you know, th- this reminds me of like when we, people used to talk about hypertension and we had JNC seven and eight and it was kind of like, well, unfortunately you all have to know both, you know, cause the thing, that, <laughs> you know, when, 
the you know regulations and things with sepsis right that stuff lags behind so i remember when sepsis 3 came out we had just implemented this huge sepsis protocol on the SERS criteria and severe sepsis mm-hmm. and septic shock and so it's you know with with the lag behind it just um, can really create challenges and, and and with appy students i think specifically that's where it can really be that gray area of um you know what to talk about so well, i agree and even in even in the research studies too i mean there's several trials that were sort of finishing up since then that had serves in the definition and so they've you know depending on what definition you use sort of changes the outcomes of the trials and everything too so well, lots of challenges so with our talk today kind of focusing on vasoactives and sepsis, when you, when you have a, a hypotensive, you know, septic patient, when do you think we should be starting vasopressors? That's a great question. <laughs> um, and it's one of those, well, it depends questions. But I think, <laughs> um, you know, for us, it's really, I think it's challenging a lot of times. We're a tertiary care hospital. And so you know, the patient may have been a couple different places um, by the time that they get to us. And so it's, I think those patients are more challenging somewhat because you're not really starting like from a scratch patient. But if you think about sort of a scratch patient who, you know, would present to your ED and everything like that, um, I, you know, I think we still fall in the, you know, a reasonable amount of, of 30 cc's per kilo kind of volume. Um, so a couple liters. And, and then we, we start vasopressors after that. So I think, you know, it's been it's been interesting for me to see the pendulum. I admittedly wasn't practicing, you know, with the whole leave a fed, leave them dead kind of philosophy. And then, you know, the pendulum swung way back over uh, to lots and lots of fluids. And I think, I mean, definitely the last, you know, five to seven years is, is coming markedly back. And so I think, you know, I think the the answer is really it's, it's more dynamic than it just is a straight probably amount up to certain. So, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, early goal direct therapy and subsequent trials kind of, faded out compared to standard of care because I think these dynamic markers of fluid responsiveness and some other things I think um, are, are probably the, the answer to that. I think uh, the Clover's trial, which is uh, sponsored by the NIH Pedal Network, they're, they're very, very close um, to being done and rolling with sort of a restrictive versus a liberal approach uh, to these kind of patients. And so I think that'll guide us a lot uh, in terms of future trials. But there's already been several pilot trials that really sort of show that the more restrictive you are up front with fluids, it, it looks like there's a pretty decent signal that patients do better. Now, I've, I've, I've been to some of your talks before, and I know you're, uh, you, one of the unique challenges in Lexington is, is obesity and weight in patients. And so, like, do you, if someone comes in 200 kilos, you know, are you giving them six liters at the door? Or do you guys kind of have, is that one of those it depends kind of cases? Yeah, again, we don't necessarily adjust our volumes up front um, just based on that. So that would be, again, kind of a scenario we would give them a couple liters uh, and then, you know, look at their IVC if we can, look at an echo. I mean, those patients are, are challenging in, in that way, not only from an amount of fluid, but also some of the imaging and everything that we take for granted can also be a little bit more difficult um, in your kind of super morbid obese patient population as well. Yeah, absolutely. The the interestingly, um, the surviving sepsis campaign, they just well not just, but earlier this year released the hour one bundle. And in this one hour, what they, you know, what they recommend is to use vasopressors if they're still hypotensive. So, mm-hmm. um, sounds like the, 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 um, authors are in line with kind of what you, what you all are doing in practice as well. So the guideline recommended first line vasopressor and septic shock is norepinephrine, but 
I think before we even start talking about adjunct or second line agents, and I think this will come up on on multidisciplinary rounds frequently of, you know, what do you consider as high dose norepinephrine? Like at what point are we starting to reach into the toolkit here? Mm-hmm. No, that's a great question. We, uh, and I think it depends on what units you use too. I mean, we, <laughs> we actually, believe it or not, at one point back in the day, used to have both uh, mics per minute and mics per kilogram per minute, both in-house and in use in, in the EMAR, which was just sort of a, uh, a massive cluster at times um, in, in ways. So we, we operate now on the mics per kilo per minute system. Um, and so I think for, for us, in terms of when we start to think about adding second agents, is I think for a lot of people it's sort of settled at about 0.2 uh, mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine. Um, that was similar to uh, the recent ATHOS-3 trial with angiotensin-2, um, looking for patients sort of with refractory shock. Certainly, by the time the patients get to 0.4, you know, you're, you're probably thinking about adding a second agent at that point. Um, although there are some people who argue that, you know, there is really no max dose of norepinephrine, so why would you add something else? Uh, so definitely in the 0.2 to 0.4 range, and then, you know, when you get up to, to 1 and, and kind of over 1, I think you're in sort of almost resuscitation doses in a way, uh, and, and certainly the, the outcomes at that point tend not to be as, as positive either. Alex, you need to warn us. I think any med safety pharmacist on the call might have, ju- or on the uh, podcast, might have just stroked out a little bit hearing that you could have had <laughs> like one room doing mics per minute and right next door potentially with the same nurse of mics per kilo per minute. <laughs> Sounds like that was a oh, good yeah. change. And we we use we use weight based as as well. Um, so okay, we've we've reached you know high dose norepinephrine, and I think you know potentially an argument for another day. I, but I think most would agree the next two kind of agents that we commonly add would be vasopressin and corticosteroids. But I think how you add them is probably up to, up for debate. So you know, do you add them both at the same time? Do you add them, you know, individually one by one? That's a great question. I think um, for, for us at least, I, I think, you know, the way we used to sort of teach it when I was kind of a resident and, and really first starting out was, you know, vasopressin was second line. And then, you know, as you're getting the vasopressin ready, you're getting the steroids ready, kind of right behind it. Um, I, you know, and I think that that's fair. Uh, I think one of the things that's made all this complicated is the cost of vasopressin. Um, and so when you, you know, put on your sort of clinical pharmacist kind of value hat uh, and everything like that, I think that has to come into play in, in how you practice, unfortunately. And so with the with the steroid trials that have come out, and we could have a whole podcast on that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm a proponent of it. I think it, it doesn't necessarily seem to hurt, and it probably gets you off pressure sooner. Um, so I'm a proponent of, of steroids once you get up into sort of that moderate to high dose range of norepinephrine. So um, I think I've evolved to sort of adding steroids first, uh, and then again, you know, if we're going to use vasopressin, maybe after that. But that's kind of our, I think, our general approach here. Okay, so if you add steroids first, let's let's tackle some of those questions first. So I think the first question is, do you use fludrocortisone or do you just do the 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone? We just do the uh, – we, we try to be as evidence-based as possible, which one would argue that you should use fludrocortisone, and I, and I think that's valid. Um, we just use the 50 milligrams every six hours of hydrocortisone. Um, and I think a large part of that, at least for us, 
there was a group that actually looked at the bioavailability of fludrocortisone in, in septic shock, and, and I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but it, it was quite horrible. Um, and so we know, you know, when you're in that severe shock, your absorption is, is obviously impaired to some degree. And so it just, I think it was a difficult argument for me to believe that, you know, you you really got that much absorption to to really make a difference, you know, and, and hydrocortisone um, should have, you know, the mineralocorticoid or glucocorticoid receptors. So you can argue which one of those receptors is actually, you know, doing anything potentially in septic shock. Uh, so for that reason, we just we just tend to do uh, the hydrocortisone monotherapy by itself. That's what we do too. I just I find I find it ironic that the you know two of the really positive studies with steroids and sepsis, right? Whether it's chance or not, they had fludrocortisone as the adjunct. I just kind of think that, and I think that we're probably in line with, you know, nationally of just doing, you know, hydrocortisone. Cause you're right. Depending on how sick they are, you can't really give them anything, you know, enterally. Um, yeah. Now, do you all, you know, do you believe there's any utility in, in random cortisol levels or, you know, any of the ACTH stim testing, or is it one of those, like, if you're thinking about steroids, you should just put them on. <laughs> that, I feel like this comes up several times each week. Yes. Um, so we, uh, we tr try not to do the random cortisols and everything like that and, and tend to follow kind of the guidelines. Um, you know, if you're going to, if you're refractory depressors and you're escalating your pressors, and you're going up, just add the steroids. I think, um, you know, at, at times, I think if you, if people end up sending them, then you're sort of on the fence about it, you know, and it, it can influence your decision, I think, in some ways, especially if like a random cortisol is less than 10. We tend to do the randoms, I feel like, more often than we do um, the stem test. I think most people are, you know, on board that the stem test won't necessarily help you predict it. Um, but the random cortisol, at least for our practices, tended to find its way in somehow. So, you know, if it's, if you're thinking about adding it and your, you know, your random cortisol is sort of less than 10, I think you're, you're definitely going to get them. Um, and then if it comes back, you know, mega high, it might help you hold off. Um, but I think for my own personal recommendations, I think that if you're, if you're thinking about adding it, I, I, I think you should just add it, especially if you're sort of rapidly escalating and, and going from there. So. I completely agree because more often than not, it's not going to be very low or very high. It's going to be this number that's like between 10 and 20 that doesn't really help you. You're kind of still on the fence right. with what to do with it, right? And so then mm -hmm. you, don't really, you don't really act on that, on that level at all. Um, and so kind of shifting back to vasopressin for a second, that's where you, know, you brought up the, the cost. And I think the cost-benefit analysis of vasopressin is so, so hard to – be able to put into like a good, a good way to have, you know, cost effective use of it because it is expensive. But then I think, you know, there's some literature supporting it. That's kind of saying that, you know, maybe doing it earlier, you might get more benefit, right. From, you know, the, the relative vasopressin deficiency and things that might happen. And so it's, it, it's a, it's a struggle for sure. No, I agree. It's, it's always hard. I mean, I think it is, you you know you can say vasopressin as well as you know catecholamine sparing and I think I think there's a lot of value in that I just don't know what that like you said putting a dollar amount to that I think is is just incredibly difficult. Now, kind of going even further down the line, thinking of you know our uh, you know sick patients, or maybe you you were where you're at the point in this you know in in the care of this patient where you you may need to start you know tailoring your um, pressors. So, you know, when do you like to switch to or maybe add epinephrine? Is that more of like a, it's almost always a third line 
kind of in addition to the two? Are there are there scenarios maybe where you might preferentially do that? You know, use epinephrine as your um, second agent. Yeah, I think so. I, I think a lot of that really depends on um, what the echo would show for us, especially. So, especially if we can get the echo decently early, and we feel like we may not have like an objective, you know, EF or anything like that. But if we feel like we might need a little bit of extra squeeze, um, that would probably lend us to add epinephrine before vasopressin in those instances. Um, but I think for for us, and this is you know just anecdotal, so it's it's taken with a grain of salt. But I think epinephrine tends to sort of cause a lot more tachyarrhythmias for us, which we you know the problem of of a tachyarrhythmia in a septic shock patient on really high dose pressors is just I think one of the most complex dilemmas to deal with in in these patients. So I think we we probably do uh, tend to add epinephrine third line after vasopressin, and so then I think you're really getting into sort of salvage therapy at that point. Uh, but again, if the echo tells us something uh, about the, the heart and the EF, especially, we, we may add that a little bit earlier. And for those, for those uh, on the you know, edge of their seats, we're going to get to some of those you know, managing side effects in just a little bit. But I, I completely agree, you know, not only like the tachyarrhythmias, but then you get all the blood glucose issues, and then you get a lactate rise, and you're wondering, are you, mm-hmm. did, did, we, did we fall behind on resuscitation now? And it's just, it, it can create problems there. Do you ever add, do, just add dobutamine, like a um, inotrope, if you see that? Or do you tend to kind of switch to do be able to do like a, um, just do epinephrine? You know, it really depends on, I think it, it really depends on how much, you know, blood pressure support we need on top of how much um, inotropy we need. So if it's a really severe case where we think, you know, like we, maybe we've got the blood pressure decently stabilized, but, you know, the EF just looks horrible. I think we probably tend to go towards dobutamine in that case. Um, but if we're still hypotensive, you know, say on 0.4 of norepi and, you know, they slap the probe on and looks like they could use a little more squeeze, I think epi, epi makes a lot of sense for us in those cases too. So, I mean, I think both those drugs are going to be arrhythmogenic uh, as well, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it still creates problems. So, um, so it's going to be really hard, at least at this time, to talk about sepsis and septic shock without mentioning and talking about, I'd say, probably the infamous Paul Merrick study from Virginia that talks about the, the HAT cocktail, right? Hydrocortisone, <laughs> ascorbic acid, and thiamine. So, you know, I had a funny story. We, we had a patient who um, came in septic, and this was right after, you know, they had the, the New York Times and the NPR articles on it. And we, you know, they requested it, and we started the therapy, and the, the mother, you know, came out of the room and, like, interrupted rounds on another patient and said, wait, well, I don't, I don't see orange juice. Like, what do you mean you're giving vitamin C? And it's just one of those, I, <laughs> I couldn't help but, but just laugh. And so is that something that you all use routinely down in Lexington? Not routinely. We, we sort of walked through this as it came. So it's, it's funny because I remember, I remember reading the article ahead of print in chest, and I thought it was interesting. I just kind of read it and said, you know, huh, and kind of deleted it as I went. And then, you know, when it finally came out, and, you know, the, the critical care blog started to pick it up and social media picked it up. And then, like you said, the NPR, I feel like that's when it really it got a lot of attention. Um, and it was it was a little bit surprising to me that it, it got that amount of attention. Um, but we had the same thing that, that you said. I mean, there were family members uh, asking for it for when, you know, patients came in uh, with sepsis or septic shock. So it's like the 
like closest thing to direct to consumer advertising in a way that like we've ever had in critical care. So we weren't used to that. Um, and so, you know, I think there was a spike in people who wanted to try it, you know, sort of at the height of the, the media frenzy for it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we pulled the data for that and I, I can't remember, we pulled the data for that and methylene blue and who we've got it and who we gave it to patients with septic shock and, and the mortality rates for one of them was 80% and the other, uh, it was 97%. So mm-hmm. I don't know that it tells us a, a lot other than I think we were, we were admittedly adding it extremely late though, um, mm-hmm. sort of as like salvage kitchen sink where I don't know that anything was necessarily going to do it. Um, so we sort of took it to our IC committee and kind of sat down and, and sort of worked through that thing. And so we, um, we, we do not do that routinely. We may have a physician or, or you know, a family maybe who will request it um, kind of out of the blue, but it is by no means part of our standard of care. Well, and then, of course, when all that came out, then there was a massive shortage on both vitamin C and thiamine. So it, can, it, made it, it makes, obviously, you know, doing that just a, a little bit tough. Um, now... You and your colleagues at, at University of Kentucky that you have pu- you all have published on the use of of thiamine and sepsis. So, kind of in general, um, maybe you know give us a little bit of review of what that um, research showed, and then in kind of in general, maybe what's your practice of using thiamine in in patients with sepsis and septic shock? Yeah, I mean this is you know for us it was kind of a, a a nice mix of using our patients that we saw and sort of integrating it with them. Some of the research that we thought was really interesting. So we uh, unfortunately have a, a lot of patients that present with substance abuse uh, and very sort of unknown histories. And so we've, you know, for as long as I've been practicing here, we we've kind of associated substance abuse with well, maybe they drink or maybe they have lifestyle behaviors that would sort of predispose them to being, you know, malnourished, which they often are. Um, and those kind of things. And so it, it's kind of been for us for a while to sort of give time into those patients. Um, and so Mike Benino's group had a, a trial in critical care medicine a couple of years ago um, where they gave thiamine and septic shock to sort of all comers. And, you know, the long story short is if you were thiamine deficient based on laboratory values, it looked like there was a signal um, towards uh, reduced mortality with that. And from you know the whole Krebs cycle, which no one wants to talk about, I'm sure. Like it, there's really a, a nice mechanism for it, um, where if you're thiamine deficient, you sort of shunt out of the Krebs cycle uh, and, and go towards lactate production. So we thought the pilot trial was really interesting, but you know, small numbers as those pilot trials are, and we said, you know, what if we sort of applied this to to our patient population here? And so we we matched patients that um, that with septic shock, you know, got thiamine and did not thiamine, did not receive thiamine. Uh, and, and we found that if, if you got thiamine, you were more likely to clear your lactate faster um, and, and even a mortality difference as well in the retrospective cohort study. So we, we don't use it in the sense that like every septic shock patient gets thiamine, um, but I think we're acutely aware to certain risk factors that may predispose patients to thiamine deficiency. So again, like I talked about, the IV drug users and substance abuse, um, those certainly, you know, heavy alcoholics will get it as part of standard of care. But even some of the things that, that you wouldn't necessarily think about, so someone's been, you know, vomiting for a week straight, um, or they were on outpatient TPN, you know, where they're getting time and those kind of things. If you if you do like a PubMed search for Wernicke's, you know, a lot of the reports these days aren't from alcoholism necessarily. They're from things, they're from the extra things kind of like that. So I think um, for us, it's really our substance abuse and drinkers, but also uh sort of having a low threshold, I guess, for thinking about other things that might predispose patients to thiamine deficiency. 
well, thank you for kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit. That's um, really, really great points. You know, whenever we've, it makes sense now that you don't use it in all sepsis comers because a, a common pushback, I think, from from like providers who I work with, right, is, is saying that, well, I actually want to know if their lactate goes up, right? I don't want to potentially clear it, but yet we're not necessarily fully resuscitating them in a sense. Do you know what I mean? Oh, sure. There's a whole, I mean, there's a whole argument that, you know, the shunting to lactate like that is, is really kind of a fuel for your brain. And so there's a whole, you know, you can go down a rabbit hole and argue that you give something like that, right, and, and help sort of take away the fuel source for the brain in a stressed state that, that you might be doing more more harm than good. I mean, the trials don't look like that, but I think you could certainly argue that point as well. So, mm-hmm. so now I think most of the most of the tools are out of the tool chest, and I think you know when when all of this fails and we're kind of in the last line of medications. You kind of hinted on them earlier. I I tend to think of two. I think of um, methylene blue, and then most recently angiotensin two. So I kind of want to talk about angiotensin two here first. That's kind of the you know new is always better, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so where would you say that angiotensin two's place of therapy should be? And I think we have to say with its current cost. I think that's probably kind of the 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 matzo ball there, right? With with this new med. You know, I think that's the $10 million question uh, about where it should be. Um, you know, it's it's really, I think it's hard for me with this drug because the, the researcher in me loves this drug. I think it's extremely cool, as I'm sure a lot of people do. Um, but again, when you put your sort of clinical pharmacist hat and value hat on, um, I, I think it's really difficult to provide an evidence-based way to use it because I think, you know, the, the trial to me was really more of a phase two of, you know, is this a vasopressor? It was very clearly a vasopressor. Um, And there's been sort of several subgroups from it that have said, you know, maybe it's good for those patients who go on CRRT. And maybe it's good in the ARDS patients with shock because they're not making as much, you know, ACE enzyme in their lungs. And a lot of, I think, unique subpopulations that really deserve to be tested out in future work. Um, but I think with its current cost, I, I think it's it's probably third line. Um, and I think, you know, the, the market angle is really to, I think, try to go after vasopressin. But I think, you know, from a safety standpoint, um, you know, I don't, vasopressin doesn't necessarily carry a black box for, you know, arterial and venous clots and everything like angiotensin 2 does. And so I think it's the cost and it's the safety. So, uh, so we had thought that it would be third line if we were to add it to formulary, um, but, but we elected not not to do so necessarily. Um, and I think the problem with, with doing it even in that role, and it's kind of like I talked about with the vitamin C and the methylene blue, where our mortality rates were so high with them, probably because we added them so late. I think there was a big worry that we were going to add a very expensive drug to patients that, you know, this far in their disease course, really no drug could necessarily cure. Um, we, we had some issues with, you know, we thought the CT surgeons might kind of run wild with it as well. Um, and so those were kind of things that we elected not to add it. So I think with what, with what is out there right now, I, I think it would really work well for like a third line vasopressor for what appears to be a salvageable patient. So, you know, not a 98 year old post cardiac arrest with multiple comorbidities. Um, but, you know, someone that you think is more likely to be salvageable who is 
sort of just shooting through the roof on their presser requirements, I, I, I think that's a reasonable place to use it. Um, but I think given what's published, I think making it anything more than like a third line rescue therapy at, at, at this time, I think is, is maybe just a little too quick to draw it in. So. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, theoretically, it would be great if this was like a tenth of the cost and we, you know, could, you know, not only use it more, but I, I think one thing when a drug is just this expensive is that it's hard to get a lot of research and literature because most of, you know, most, if not all of these studies are going to be manufacturer sponsored because this drug is mm-hmm. so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so and we don't, we don't have angiotensin two on our formulary either. And so it sounds like at least for you all kind of now the, the last line therapy is methylene blue. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a really good, um, review article, um, published, uh, a few years ago in, in pharmacotherapy, kind of talking about the different doses and dosing strategies. And it's kind of mm-hmm. all over the map a little bit. So generally speaking, what's, what's your all's general approach when you, when you use methylene blue? We, so we honestly don't use it that much. Uh, we've had really one attending in the last probably six or seven years who's wanted to use it. Um, and it was very sparingly, but that was all of our methylene blues that we pulled when I was uh, talking about pulling the data. It's really not used because again, I think at that point when you're reaching for that, um, the, the, you know, we're usually over one, you know, mic per kilo per minute of norepinephrine and, and I think especially, you know, with methylene blue and sort of the challenges with monitoring oxygenation with SAT probes and things like that after, I think it, it it's not something that I think we do very commonly necessarily. Um, so, that it's you know, at that point, usually we're, I think once you get above one of norepi and, and you know, we're talking to families and kind of things like that, I think we're, we're mostly going up on the norepi probably more than anything else. So. Mm-hmm. so- Shifting gears just a little bit. So, you know, we're, what we've been talking about, you know, for most of this is, you know, the patients who were adding, you know, vasopressors or vasoactives um, to help meet our MAP goal. Now, I think we all are familiar with, you know, patients that we have difficulty in weaning vasopressors. And so are there ever any scenarios where you all modify kind of hemodynamic goals from the, you know, standard of MAP greater than 65? Yeah, absolutely. We don't, uh, we, we don't necessarily shoot higher. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of data about, you know, pre-existing hypertension. We don't necessarily do that, but we will somewhat commonly lower the MAP goal. So for us in our population, um, probably the biggest group is cirrhotics, um, who either, you know, we can tell from, you know, pre-existing, you know, med lists that they're on midodrine before admission, um, or maybe a newly diagnosed or whatnot. And so we will drop their MAP goals to maybe 55, um, very rarely even 50. Um, the same kind of thing with uh, in the elderly potentially. So, you know, our, our general rule is as long as they're mentating okay and making urine, like 55 is probably okay. Um, and and that, that I think comes up, uh, I mean, that's a really nice intervention I think for us to make sometimes when, you know, we're like, why can't we get them off pressers? You know, do they need more fluid? And sometimes it's just, you know, maybe the goal just needs to be relaxed, and that's okay. Um, sometimes, you know, if there's really, really wide sort of pulse pressure and everything like that, we might switch up to systolics. But I think the the more common thing, I think, for us is, is like in a cirrhotic or maybe in, in someone who sort of lives uh, hypotensive before admission. And that can sometimes be difficult to figure out without talking to family, but we'll we'll drop those goals sometimes. 
Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Uh, those are those are always real scenarios, and I, I think you make a really good point. That's something easy that we can do that you know everyone likes. No one wants to be on pressers if you don't need to. So if we can if we can assist in helping weaning, that's always a, a good victory. So you you hit on this earlier, right? Vasopressors aren't really they're not without their own risk or adverse effects, right? Our goal is to use the lowest dose for the lowest possible time. So you know, kind of generally speaking, because I know these are, this is probably one of the big scenarios where it's, well, it depends, but how do you typically manage adverse effects? You know, do you treat the side effect? Do you try to change the agent? No, that's a great, I always tell our residents uh, with me, like the, the side effects of pressors and, and especially the, the tachyrrhythmias, like I think those are, are, are really the, one of the most difficult situations to deal with where you've got someone who's really hypotensive and high dose and, you know, all of a sudden they, you know, develop a tachyrrhythmia and you're trying to manage that as well. Um, so I'm, you know, I tend to be a minimalist with drugs. I try. I think it's, it's like a really good uh, exercise for our residents because, you know, a lot of times they might get asked by the medical residents, you know, what, what dose of amiodarone should I give here or something like that. And I think that's one of those like prime examples of critical care, like where answering the direct question may not be like the best thing that you can do. It's often like, well, have we, you know, did we look at the electrolytes and make sure those are okay? Like, does the patient need fluid in this instance? Um, and sort of those other things. And I think you can you can get into, you know, maybe changing around the drug. Uh, you know, I kind of have mixed feelings about changing to phenylephrine over norepinephrine. You know, it, it makes sort of pharmacologic sense, but then, you know, there's a little bit of data that if, when when there was a norepinephrine shortage and patients tended to get phenylephrine in shock, they tend to do worse. And so I think a lot of that depends on, you know, what the patient's uh, echo looks like and what their ejection fraction is and so forth and so forth. So I think if you can try to fix underlying causes instead of adding drugs, I think that's better because I think going down the, you know, otherwise it's sort of going down the amiodarone route. Some people might elect to go down the esmolol route. I think that's really hard from a hemodynamic standpoint. Um, so it's kind of, I, it's a great like teaching case because it's like the same that I do for delirium. Like the question is like, what's the max dose of Seroquel, right? But there's always so many more questions that you need to like ask about before you actually answer the question that's been directed to you. So would you say it, that if they're, if the patients are having like those tachyarrhythmias or there's those adverse effects is there, do you, do you have a certain time period that you really work on, right? Maximizing electrolytes, antiarrhythmics, et cetera. But it, you know, does it get to a certain point where you're kind of like put between a rock and a hard place and you kind of end up biting your tongue and switching, or is it, you kind of have your, your, your feet dug in most of the time? No, I think, I mean, it's, it's really difficult, especially, you know, if, if a patient, if you're worried about their reserve, I mean, I think it's really difficult to sort of let a patient hang out, you know, in one, 140s, 150s, 160s or whatnot. So, you know, our, our practice here, I think in those cases is, is we tend to rely on amiodarone a lot. Um, because the other thing that's, that's really difficult to tell is whether or not this is actually due to your catecholamines or whether it's just due to sepsis and septic shock. Um, it's it's really difficult to tell that that the drugs are the culprits here, even though they certainly could be. Um, so, you know, I think if we get put between a rock and a hard place, we we tend to jump to amiodarone, but we usually don't continue it past sort of the first bag, if you will. So, mm-hmm. so for these patients, I think our goal obviously is always to wean vasopressors off. But I think a, a frequent question that comes up is, you know, how do we do this? So. Alex, what would you say is our order of operations? Because I, I think similar to our old, you know, algebra or math classes, I, I think that order probably matters here. What do you think? 
You know, it, it's funny because I think the the cost and the value discussion comes in here as well, even though you, you wouldn't necessarily think it would. I think, um, you know, most of the the data that's been published on this says that you you tend to get more hypotension if you wean the vasopressin off first. So there was pretty much all of the retrospective studies, and there's several now, um, basically advised that weaning vasopressin off first is associated with more hypotension. Uh, we just were part of a meta-analysis that Drayton Hammond led, and, and even in that, you know, e even with an RCT that was a little bit different that showed opposite results, uh, the sort of overall finding was that it, it looks like if you wean the vasopressin first, there's more hypotension. The, the caveat is it doesn't seem like there's any difference in ICU length of stay or mortality. So again, if you're, if you're to the point where, you know, you're sort of finishing off your vasopressin bag here, which is, you know, $400 or whatever a bag, you know, does it really matter if you go from, you know, 0.06 to norepinephrine to, you know, 0.1 of norepinephrine and those kind of things. So, you know, this is kind of one of those things where, you know, I think the, the literature would guide you one way. And then, you know, based on sort of my value assessment of that, I, I personally practice to try to get the vasopressin off first, just from a cost standpoint with the recognition that it might come with, you know, a, a little bit of bump in the norepi. So. I know I'm torn. I, I was, I was initially torn because <laughs> that's exactly right. That used to be my that used to be my the the recommendation I would make right is to to do the vaso first and then when you're when you practice one way and you see three and four papers coming out telling you you may want to do something differently it kind of always makes you like question what you've what you've been doing a little bit but I think the the point oh, yeah. on the on the clinical outcomes is a is a really important one now kind of stepping back so let's just say for example that this is the patient where the vaso stayed on at the end. So do you just turn off the vasopressin? Do you all have like a taper, like a kind of protocol that you all use? We we don't. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen both and I don't really, you know, just me personally, I don't know that I have strong feelings about kind of one or the other. Um, I think the one, the one sort of pet peeve I think I have in the weaning process of all this, though, is when we end up, you know, we'll be on decent doses of, of norepinephrine and, and vasopressin and, and we kind of end up on like, 0.04 of norepinephrine and like 0.04 of vasopressin for like 24 hours. I'm like, what are we doing, guys? Like, we can, we can, simpler is always better, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Now, kind of in that same, um, you know, frame of reference here. So, do you, do you all taper the corticosteroids or do you simply, you know, DC them when they're out of the shock phase of sepsis? Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I feel guilty because this is kind of another area where I don't know that we practice to the letter of the of the law with what the trials have done and everything. Um, but we, I think, especially for the patients that you know you're giving steroids to and you're you're treating for septic shock and they're better in you know anywhere from the next day to you know three or even four days out, they're just better and off of pressors. We we tend to stop um, because we think whatever process is causing that is resolved. There's really no more need for that necessarily. If I think even you know even out to six or seven days, I'm I'm usually still okay with stopping. But I think if there's potentially a little bit of an argument to to start weaning at that point, um, but but really I think it. I don't know that I have necessarily seen clinically you know the issue of I stop steroids and then the patient's blood pressure just tanks because we've done that. You know, um, so I've kind of I mean that's I think my practice and I think a lot of our practices once the 
you know, once the pressors are off, that's when you really start to think about, you know, stopping the steroids, start thinking about diuresis, kind of all that, not a checkbox per se, we sort of start going down that pattern now. So it's easy, right? It depends. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> Um, I tell you, the more I practice, like the less intelligent I feel at times. So. <laughs> I, that is the truest statement that that I think we've said today, one hundred percent. I mean, the, the the guidelines only suggest tapering if that makes you feel better, so they don't like strongly <laughs> recommend it. So, I mean, what you all, I think that's that's what I do. That's what I do as well. Um, now, something else, you know, we were we were talking about the the hat cocktail that's that's really gained, um, I guess popularity or you know people have become aware of it i think another you know area or intervention for um blood pressure management and sepsis is the use of midodrin um so when do you kind of consider if at all using midodrin right our oral alpha agonist to help assist with getting off of you know the iv vasopressors yeah i think this is you know, this has been a very useful uh, drug at times, and at other times, I think it's a little more sneaky than we think it is. Um, so we we saw a lot, I think, in our cirrhotics because they're either you know on it prior to admission or or they might need it. I think for me personally, you know, I tend to make the recommendation when the patient who's on like 0.02 of you know norepinephrine uh, mics per kilo per minute, and it's been a couple days on rounds, and it's the kind of situation where the nurse is like. I turn it off and their maps just drop to the 50s. Like that kind of scenario to me really makes me think of, of metadrin for the for the patients that really just need a whiff of pressors, but but who aren't really tolerating all the way off. I don't, we don't necessarily practice in the way of you know starting every patient who's in shock and and coming down on their pressors on metadrin. I think there's some really interesting data that looks like you know it might shorten the pressure duration and, and ICU length of stay if you do that. Um, but I mean, I think there's a lot of things about midodrine that have come up. I mean, one of the things there, there's really a couple of things. I think one of the sort of sneaky side effects of midodrine uh, is the bradycardia because it is the pure alpha agonist. Especially if you have someone like on Presidex who you're weaning off the vent, you add midodrine and you're trying to wean off the pressors. I think that can lead to bradycardia or just even the midodrine by itself. Um, I think, and then it creates a lot of issues with. Um, you know, just, uh, again, I'm a minimalist of medicines, and so I think we've all probably seen, like, the midodrine metoprolol combination, and that just kind of, like, makes my skin cringe every time I see that. Um, so, you know, I think there's that. And then the other thing is I think it just sort of gets left on. And so um, there's a group from Mayo that, that published on this uh, in critical care medicine, and I think up to a third of patients were, were discharged from the hospital on midodrine because it's one of those drugs that I think people see and they're like, oh, they need it. I'm not going to touch it. And then you get, you know, you get all kinds of creative cocktails like the midodrine metoprolol and <laughs> midodrine, you know, coreg and kind of things going on. So, and it's it's interesting because it's, you know, we think of it as a cheap drug, but it's it's really not that cheap. And there's actually the FDA was actually going to pull it off the market, um, but now there's a, a study that's ongoing to look at it to wean pressers. And so it'll be really interesting to see if whoever I'm not sure who the sponsor is. But it'd be really interesting to see, you know, if somebody kind of goes after like an IND and then tries to like rebrand Midodrin and this whole, you know, Midodrin is not that expensive kind of thing will we'll maybe be out the window too. So, I mean, I, I think we, everyone can say who's listening with confidence that if, if that's a, if, if they get that IND, that that's absolutely what's going to happen. Like, I mean, that's, there, there's, <laughs> there's just so many examples of that, of that happening, you know, unfortunately you, so the the two issues that I, that I have with it is number one, I feel like to truly get the the bang for your buck, you need to use 
higher doses than we're probably used to using, right? For our for our, our, our liver patients or you know the the dialysis patients who have who have orthostasis. You know, a lot of times, you know, five TID is probably not going to do a whole lot. And then by the time you actually get to the dose that helped, it's like, well, was it the midodrin or, or did we just naturally wean off the pressors at that point? Oh yeah. I mean, I usually start, my, my starting dose personally is 10 TID. Um, I have one of our attendings who likes to start at 20 TID and says, well, if it works really well, we'll just back off. <laughs> so I think it depends on how like impatient you're getting um, with the, the patient kind of weaning off pressors. But the other, the other thing that I think, you know, you sort of jog my memory on with, with kind of using that high dose is that I think the other sort of hidden danger in it is that it's almost a Band-Aid in the shock patient. So if you, you know, say have a patient who's on, you know, 0.06 of norepinephrine, you know, in the morning on rounds and you add midodrine and then the next day they're on, you know, norepinephrine 0.1, but they're still on the midodrine, the patient is probably markedly worse from like a hemodynamic standpoint, even though it looks like they're just a little bit worse. So I think it's, it's almost a band-aid in a way that kind of like you were talking about with the lactate and wanting to follow that. I think it can be tricky at times too, when you forget like how much vasopressor support that, that it can be on, especially when you start, you know, going up on the dose and going to, you know, four times a day dosing and things like that too. Yeah, it's that's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. I think when when you get some, because there's a lot of I think hospitals and health systems who are you know who have protocolized this right. And day one, day two, they're getting it on. So getting some of that literature, talking with them about their real world use of it, I think will be you know really important and valuable as we kind of figure out where midodrine's place in therapy is in these patients. Yeah. So. Alex, I, you, you covered just a, a tremendous amount of important points here. What would you say would be you know, some really kind of high-level takeaway points kind of for everyone listening? I, I think, you know, this is such a complex disease state and kind of like I, I alluded to with, you know, delirium and, and with sort of the, the question about AFib. I, I feel like whatever, whatever question that you get asked is like the pharmacist rounding in this is, is usually – not one that you can answer like immediately or, or there's always like an underlying question um, that I think is important to, to look out for, if you will. So, um, I mean, I think the other things is, you know, if given the, I think given the value and really the, the emphasis on value for the health systems currently and, and kind of what the future is, I think it's, I think it's really important not to take, all studies necessarily at face value as one drug is better than the other, but to really think about what things mean for you and what it means for the patient. So what does it mean for the patient that their MAP goes up, but there's no difference in outcomes? Or what does it mean for the patient that if you wean one vasopressor faster than the other, you know, they have more hypotension, but, but no change in things like that. And so I think really, uh, I think applying that, especially where these things get tricky and we have to deal with drug shortages and price hikes and all, all of these things, I think, make something that's already complex, even just kind of more complex. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, right? Especially not taking, you know, all of the um, information at face value, because you know, I, th- I think you, you uh, alluded to it that it's, you'll get conflicting reports, and you're kind of left scratching your head. So bringing that back is, is really, really great. You're heavily involved in, in research. So is there any, are there any trials or, you know, maybe, um, kind of research areas or topics that you would just like to see more um, covered kind of things that we should keep our eye out for? Yeah, I think, um, 
I mean, last you, you've sort of alluded to the hat. I mean, I think that has just exploded. So the last time I looked, you know, there were any, I think 12 to 14 trials ongoing with that. So hopefully we'll have some answers for that uh, sort of in the next couple of years. You know, I think virtually all of them are testing the cocktail, so you won't know which aspect it is. Um, but it'll be interesting to see those carried out in a, a randomized controlled trial and, and not necessarily a, a pre-post kind of environment. Um, I think in terms of, of new vasopressors, really the, the only ones that I'm familiar with that have been studied are, are not looking promising necessarily. So terlopressin, um, which is not approved in the United States yet, uh, has been studied. It doesn't seem like there's a mortality benefit for that in septic shock. Um, Celopressin was another vasopressin analog um, that had a really cool adaptive trial design, and the last I heard from that, um, it, that trial was, was stopped by the manufacturer. Um, I haven't personally seen anything from that yet, so I think it doesn't sound like that's necessarily coming either. Um, and then I think we all would love to see more data um, on angiotensin too. and I'm not sure, you know, I know a lot of people really want to see kind of a head-to-head -head of that against vasopressin, um, and certainly evaluating uh, you know, whether or not you can target that drug, but especially, you know, in the patients who present with shock and AKI, I think there's a lot of sort of physiologic sense to that as well. So I think those would be, those would be some interesting things that I think would really help us. And then, um, like I alluded to, uh, in the start of the, the, the topic, I think the, the Clover's trial will really help us a lot, um, with, you know, the question of like, how much fluid do I give before I add pressors and, and kind of things like that. So it should be an exciting couple of years here sort of see where these things fit. Totally agree. Alex, this was great. Really enjoyed getting to know more about you, gain some of your valuable insight into managing vasoactives and vasopressors and sepsis. So for anyone listening, where where can the listeners find you? Are you on Twitter or anything? I am on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at aflannerypharmd, uh, and, and you're welcome to follow me there for whatever whatever I might decide to tweet. So. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Alex. All right. Thanks, Nick. Have a blast. Another huge thank you to Alex Flannery for taking the time to join us. Also want to give a massive thank you to you, the listeners. This podcast doesn't exist without you, so thank you. So please send me feedback, both positive and negative, as well as any guest or topic ideas via Twitter or Instagram at pharmacy to dose. That's T-O to dose or via email at pharmacytodose at gmail.com. On our website, pharmacytodose.com, you'll find the show notes that include background reading, sepsis guidelines, articles referenced in this discussion, and much, much more. Honestly, I'd love to hear from each and every one of you. Finally, we're still searching for a podcast sponsor. So if you are interested or if you have any connections that could help, please let us know. Until next time, I'm Nick Peters. And this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.